0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what can we expect from the federal government's economic statement and should we be concerned about the looming recession? We'll talk about that. Discuss the latest details in the Emergencies Act inquiry too with Jeffrey Devorkin, senior fellow at Massey College. And the prime minister is questioning Doug Ford's use of the notwithstanding clause calling the move wrong. What exactly is that clause and why is it so rarely used? It's so all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Tomorrow in Ottawa, uh, the government uh, business will continue, and uh, Finance Minister Christian Freeland, we are told, will present a, a fall economic statement as to what's that included in, in there and, and what the direction is. I guess we're going to talk strategy here. To get some clarity on that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Marvin Ryder, business professor, at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, great to have you with us. Thanks for the time
1: today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Do you, fi- do you find yourself having to say to people, I have a cold and not COVID?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, clearly. You have to make that distinction, I guess, these days. And, and I don't blame people. You, everybody wants to be cautious, I suppose. But it's just a cold. Uh, so far. I know. I understand. <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a man cold, Marvin. So, it, you know, with <laughs> a little sympathy here. Come on. Uh, I will. Anyway. <laughs> this this is not a budget that uh, the minister is going to be producing. So th- th- this is this going to be policy? Is this going to be projection? What, what are we going to hear tomorrow?
1: Right. So uh, every year in March or thereabouts, the finance minister brings down a budget. The fiscal year for the government starts on April 1st and ends on March 31st. So that's when you bring down the budget in the spring. The problem is that a year is a long time in economic history. So about six months later, October, November the finance minister does a fiscal update and says, here's how things are looking compared to budget. Now, let me give you a quick example. Back in the spring when the federal government brought down the budget, uh, Chrystia Freeland announced that the deficit for the fiscal year of 21-22, this is the year that ended on March 31st, she thought it was going to come in around $122 billion. We now know the number was 90 billion dollars wait a minute whoa 90 billion that's 30 billion dollars better for this year that we're in she had projected the budget deficit was going to be 60 billion six zero 60 billion dollars i am fully expecting tomorrow when she gives the update to say well we've taken a look at that number and we've revised it too i'm going to guess something like 50 billion 45 billion we actually know that in the first half of the year the federal government ran a surplus because of revenues they weren't anticipating. One of the side benefits of inflation is that government collects more tax revenue. When you and I pay more for an item, well, we also pay more tax on that item. So I don't think they're going to balance the books this year, but I think she's going to say the deficit's come in a little lower. And then I think what she's going to say, and I hate hate to do this to you, she's going to say, I feel your pain, I hear your pain. (laughs) She's not going to give you any broad-based relief, but... I expect some of the, the small targeted relief, like doubling the GST credit, they're going to extend a little further. They'll come up with some other targeted things for the lower-income Canadians. But if you're a middle-class person, don't expect any great uh, support in the update tomorrow.
0: Let's uh, get something else off the table, too, because I've seen an awful lot of comment on social media saying, well, you know, they, they've they got to stop the interest rate increases that have gone on. Uh, that's not within her purview, is it?
1: <laughs> no, no. God bless that people think that. The Bank of Canada is an independent operation. Um, they, they're given that independence specifically so the government can't monkey around either with the money supply. It is the Bank of Canada ultimately who prints the money and, and releases it to the public or uh, play with interest rates. And so, you know, the finance minister could encourage the governor of the Bank of Canada to slow down. In fact, he did slow down uh, I suspect today you're going to hear in the United States that the federal reserve board chair is going to announce a three quarters of a percent increase there. We only went up a half a percent last week. And I think we are actually getting to the high end of this cycle of increasing interest rates, but she can't roll it back. She can't change that at all. That's really the independence that we like in the Canadian system.
0: So, th- so that's off the table altogether. But as, as you talked about when they initiated this policy, uh, there's a balance here. I mean, you know, because if, if these, you know, prices continue to go up the way they've gone up for the last couple of months, uh, we're heading towards a recession. And there's still people that say that that's on the horizon. It might even happen before Christmas.
1: I think it'll be an interesting question whether Christia Freeland walks into that. A couple of weeks ago, she gave a speech in which she warned that there were some bumpy times ahead for our economy. So, so Bill, again, let me just put this as plainly as I can. What the Bank of Canada is trying to do with higher interest rates is to bring inflation down, to slow our spending as consumers, but not to stop our spending as consumers. So, they do want to see the economy grow at a slower rate. They do want to bring it down, but they don't want to stop it altogether. That means they want to try to avoid a recession. Now, we know we just got data about the August growth in the economy, it was stronger than we anticipated. We know from some American data there, September was stronger than anticipated. So I don't think we're going to have a quarter in which our economy shrinks uh, in the first three quarters of this year. If it did shrink in the last quarter, the quarter that we're in right now, okay, that's not great, but we need two of those in a row before we're in a recession. So quite candidly, we couldn't be in a recession until maybe the second quarter of 2023 at the earliest. Uh, We're trying to avoid that. We're trying to avoid that. But if we happen to slip into a recession in the sense that we have just a tiny amount of shrinkage in the economy for a couple of quarters, I think we'll get through this just fine. It'll be what we call a technical recession. Technically we're in a recession, but we're not seeing the impact. And the one that I watch the most is jobs. Typically in a recession, a lot of people lose jobs and therefore they lose their ability to spend money we've got record low unemployment, around 5.2%. And at the same time, we've got nearly a million jobs unfilled in this country. So even if we fall into a bit of a recession in early 2023, and even if a few companies wind up laying off workers, those workers should almost instantly be able to find work. Therefore, I'm not sure we're going to have a terrible or, or you know, earth-shattering recession if we have one at all. But it is likely that this is such a difficult thing to do, to walk this line of cooling the economy, bringing inflation down, and yet not triggering a recession. I won't be shocked if they can't, can't avoid slipping into a recession, but I don't think it's going to be very deep or very painful.
0: Marvin, what is at play here right now? I mean, you, you've mentioned, and even uh, Mr. Macklin, of course, the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada talked about this when he started on this policy of raising interest rates, that it was going to take months, maybe a year uh, or more, uh, for what he's doing to actually have an impact on, on what's going on with the economy. Well, the economy's fluctuating anyway. Uh, you know, interest rates are going up and down, and, and uh, prices are going up and down. As you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the government's making more money. Uh, the, the the economy seems to be in relatively good shape. All you know, and again, that's relative, I suppose. But, okay. but what's what's causing the up and down here that, that that we're experiencing? And and I guess the other part of that question is, uh, so the, what the bank has done here is really not even impacting us yet. So we haven't even felt that yet.
1: Yeah. So let, let's come at that a couple ways, by Ken, Bill. First, uh, why is everyone so focused on inflation? Because inflation affects everybody. The rich, the poor, the the people who are struggling, we all go to the the grocery store, we all see the impacts of higher prices on inflation, or you saw it when you were buying Halloween candy, or you'll see it as you're getting ready for your, your Christmas meal. And this is why the Bank of Canada says, we want to bring that down, because that's going to benefit everybody. Now, turn it around, how are they doing this raising interest rates? That's going to affect people who borrow money. Well, not everybody is borrowing money. And even if you happen to have a mortgage, if you're in a in the middle of a five-year term, you're not going to be affected until you go to renegotiate that. And conceivably in a year or two, interest rates will change yet again as the inflation comes under control. So the gamble is those those people, and they're less than everybody who's affected by higher interest rates, that is better, but bring down the broad inflation. Now, why is it moving at all? I I you and I had talked about this 18 months ago and and Mr. Clever here said, well, I thought inflation would be down in the first quarter of this year. What none of us saw happen was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And why should events half a world away make a difference? Well, uh, it's created uncertainty. And the one thing the economy always hates is uncertainty. We don't know what's going on. Uh, oddly, had this been a very short battle and either Russia loses in four weeks or the Ukraine loses in four weeks, we'd then have certainty. And much of the problems we're having would go away. This bouncing around would go away. But can you tell which side is winning? Can you tell who's coming out ahead? And then nice people like Mr. Putin will come along and say, well, you know, if you folks in the West keep intervening, I'm going to fire off a couple of short-term nuclear weapons. What? What? Whoa, nuclear weapons. So it's kept us all on a state of high alert, even something as simple as grain. So why does your beer cost more? Why does your bread cost more? Well, it's made out of grain. And Ukraine and Russia are two of the countries in the world, along with Canada, that are viewed as breadbaskets to the world. They produce a lot of grain and they export a lot of grain. Well, the Ukrainian grade wasn't able to go out for the longest time. Even now it's begun to be shipped. But now Russia's announced that it's not going to guarantee safe passage of grain tankers uh, leaving the, the Baltics or the Black Sea going where it's going. So, again, what we've seen are prices for things like oats and wheat and corn and barley all going up, and that's caused other problems. If we could get peace back in the region, let the farmers do what they do in that area, those things would come down. So you've got two different factors here. You've got the general economic conditions going on in Canada, but we have world events that are keeping us on high alert in a state that we probably don't need to be in if we could just get peace back to that region.
0: Well, uh, speaking of outside influences, uh, i got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, What about our neighbors to the south here? Uh, They're dealing with the same problems we are right now, and they've got a thing which they call the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which are a series of initiatives they're trying to implement here to try to get their inflation under control too. How do we respond on this side of the border to what they're doing? We we have to stay competitive.
1: Right. So here's, again, a couple of things. First, their uh, inflation problem is greater than ours. In Canada, our inflation... And I know this is not a happy number at 6.9 percent, but in the United States, it's over 8 percent. As well, as you probably know, in about uh, a week, a little less than a week, there's going to be midterm elections in the United States, and it appears the Democrats are going to lose control of the Congress and will not be able to gain any control of the Senate. So in a last-ditch effort to try to win over voter support, uh, Mr. Biden and his friends passed this Inflation Reduction Act, which... It sounds like a great thing. And I think the design, the idea was to say to the public at large, look, we hear your, heal your pain. Here's what we're going to do. Now, I've looked at the act and I, I actually can't see a lot of substance to what they've got in this act that would have an impact on Canada. There are some things internal about making health care more affordable. There are some things here around helping some first time homeowners. But it, it's a great sounding act. But I'm not sure Canada has a lot to do with it. Now, Clearly, a Chrystia Freeland tomorrow in her economic update, if she feels we need to respond in some way, she'll include that in her statement. But I think tomorrow's statement is going to be high on concept and low on action. A lot of, you know, we feel your pain. The country is strong. We're going to hunker down to get through it. I just don't think you're going to see a lot of new proposed legislation tomorrow.
0: Well, maybe uh, it's because nobody has the answers. Uh, as you say, that's it's a it's a pretty bland document that the uh, the Biden administration is trying to push through right now. But that's the key thing. I mean, they have a very tenuous hold on Congress right now. So I don't know if they actually want to go through a long and, and probably drawn out debate about the bill. Just, hey, here's some good news. We're going to try to help you. And, and maybe it's going to be the same tenure we're going to hear from our finance minister.
1: Yeah. and And frankly, Bill, Mr. Biden doesn't want to come out and say this, but there's very little that he can do about inflation either. Uh, As much as Pierre Polyev likes to call it just inflation and blame Justin for every bad thing that's happened to you, probably including your cold today, Bill, uh, Mm. it it really isn't something that the government can control. There's a lot of stuff going on in in Britain, as bad as it might be in the United States. In Britain, inflation is now over 10 percent. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. It will get back to normal as the world takes corrective actions. But we also think there is this danger that, as everybody takes corrective actions, those might combine and lead us into that economic turmoil in 2023 of a recession. So do something, but don't do too much, and then watch carefully and adjust on the fly. It is very difficult to get through this, but I think we will. I think 2023, all told, is going to be a better year than 2022.
0: Marvin Ryder, as always, Marvin, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it.
1: Glad to be with you, Bill.
0: Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business, of course, at McMaster University. And uh, we'll find out what the finance minister uh, has uh, in her bag of tricks to try to get this under control tomorrow.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: One of the organizers of the uh, protest in Ottawa, Chris Barber, was on the stand yesterday at the, the inquiry into the investigation of the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act. And uh, I know some people were kind of upset about that, that uh, you would have given these guys a platform for, well, let's you know try to make some determinations as to what happened and what went on. And uh, during the cross-examination, uh, Barbara was asked, well, how did these mandates that you seem so upset about affect you personally? Here's what he had to say.
1: We lost a lot of drivers. Um, what freight I can't handle myself for my company, I share with other fellow drivers and other company owners. Uh, we lost, the government likes to say 10% of cross-border drivers. I didn't see that. I seen it more 35 to 40%. We lost a lot of drivers, like a, a tremendous amount of drivers. Where freight was backed up both sides of the border and caused some significant trouble.
0: I want to get some assessment on this. I don't know how much of this you're watching or how much you're even paying attention to this. It's important. It's actually uh, required by law that the, this inquiry uh, take place after the act is 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 used in situations like this. Uh, and I want to bring Jeffrey Devorkin into the conversation. Jeffrey, of course, is a senior fellow at Massey College and a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and also the author of "Trusting the News in a Digital Age." Uh, Jeffrey, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Nice to be with you, Bill. Are, are you following this story? Are you watching it? Is, is this riveting TV?
2: Um, it's interesting TV. I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't call it quite riveting, but I, it's also important. Uh, because there seems to be, you know, a lot of conflicting narratives on this. On the one hand, uh, the truckers who were fed up with uh, mandates, as they say, um, which and they were decided to protest entirely legitimately, but the manner of their protest was very uh, over-the-top, shall we say. Uh, in, in fact, doing a disservice... Uh, to bring their protests to Ottawa in the way that they did. And the way that it was reported was, I would say, not very sympathetic to the drivers, because my sense was from watching and listening to the reporting um, on in on radio and television and to a lesser extent in print, there was a tremendous amount of uh, strange motivations. Um, and the... the um, the drivers themselves, the convoy people themselves, didn't have a very good idea of how to handle the media, or at least get their message across through the media. They became uh, pretty hostile uh, in many instances. Uh, uh, Gre- uh, Glenn McGregor from CTV was was harassed and threatened as he tried to report from the site. Um, this is not <laughs> not a good way to get your message across. And 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 the other thing is and I'm thinking of this in in police terms, the police seemed um, either overwhelmed uh, and unable to handle this. There was a kind, I'm not comparing these things directly, but in Uvalde, Texas, the police were afraid to go into the school to rescue the children. I have a sense that there was a bit of that in Ottawa as well, because there were these, rumors of uh, violence and uh, weapons uh, among the truckers and the cops didn't seem able to handle it. They either overreact as they did in Toronto when they were clearing out uh, uh, people in tents from uh, public parks by uh, beating the hell out of them. Uh, or they underreact as they seem to do in Ottawa because they seemed to be, they, they didn't have a clear idea how to handle it. So obviously there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done on the part of government, but also on the part of police forces. What is the appropriate response? And I don't think they had it here.
0: Well, and one of the other stories and one of the other narratives of how that is, is where some of the officers complicit, where they sympathetic to the, uh, to the protesters and as a result, didn't want to move in. I, it, it's, uh, But there are so many, Jeffrey, so many different narratives in there. How do you, how do you, how do you develop a, any kind of a consensus here? I mean, they're going to have to write some kind of a report here, I would think, at some point. Uh, but when you've got one guy saying
2: black and another guy saying white, uh, where do you go? Well, that's that's the problem. And I think the, the we need to uh, to suggest to the public uh, that they need that we all need to be patient about this. There's no kind of easy outcome, and we've been kind of conditioned in the media uh, to want a simple solution, and we want it. To you know, an hour ago, um, we're not. This is one of these situations where where there is no easy answer, and we're going to have to wait for the commission to come to a conclusion, and then we so, can report on that, and that that'll be that'll be the story.
0: Well, the temptation is is uh, you know right there in front of us right now to want to comment already, uh, but we're doing it piecemeal. I mean, you know, the the, the testimony from a former chief of police uh, slowly. Uh, was vastly different from the testimony from his two deputies uh, uh, just a couple of days before that. Uh, you know, how do you how do you make a determination as to, to who's on the right track here?
2: I, I don't think it's going to be easy, um, and we have to also be careful in journalism uh, that we're not being manipulated. Um, there, there are a lot of leaks. I hear, that are going on yeah. from various sources, both from the, either the truckers or from the government, uh, saying, well, look, this is uh, this is what we knew and this is why we did it. Um, and then when the media reports uh, that sources tell us that such and such a thing happened, but we can't reveal our sources, um, that kind of opens the gate for for a lot of media manipulation and my sense was I've heard that a number of news organizations were given leaks about the nature of the truckers protest that came from the government and the media then would report it saying sources close to the government are saying blah 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 and then uh, politicians would go on the talk shows and say uh, well, I heard it on the media. I saw it on CBC or I saw it on CTV. Uh, so therefore, it must be true. So we have to be really careful, both as consumers of information and as providers of information that we're not being uh, led around by the nose, as it were.
0: But but you know, what, what feeds that, though, is, is this overwhelming desire, I guess, when we're into a situation like this. And let's face it, this was a huge, huge story. Mm-hmm. uh where journalism or newspapers radio print, whatever the case is going to be uh they want to get it first, not necessarily get it right uh you know w- as we first reported well and you know, did you verify all your sources? Well no, but you know we want to get it out there. we want to be the leader
2: in this and uh, and
0: that that can really fall apart and blow up in your face
2: absolutely i mean the 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 competitive urges which always are a good thing in journalism, but when it's overdone can be a disservice because it's providing. A, a a a narrative that can't be verified and, and journalism has an obligation to provide responsible verifiable information that's our challenge now in a digital age
0: and, and i know that you know it, it it may be a little problematic for some of the journalists because they just got to sit back and wait for this and uh you, you want to be out there and be in, in front of it i mean because even as this was occurring and I think you and i talked about this last february Uh, It was happening in front of our eyes. I mean, we didn't necessarily need reporting. The cameras were telling the story right there about who was doing what and who was saying what, but your your point's well taken. I I got the sense as this thing rolled on, and we're starting to get some sense of it here with with the testimony of some of the protesters themselves, that they all got to Ottawa and think, (laughs) okay, now what do we do? Uh, They didn't have much of a strategy, really, and uh, they're they're very, very different uh, concepts, and some people had had one uh, concept, one ideology of what they wanted to carry through, and others uh, a little more drastic than that. Uh, there, there wasn't a consensus at all right there, and as a result, as you say, it was a rather garbled message.
2: Right, and I think that we're seeing this uh, in other places. Uh, you may recall about a winter or so ago uh, that there was a demonstration in France uh, against rising gasoline prices, and mm. the group were would put on yellow vests, you know, like construction vests, and they were known yeah. as the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests. And they came to Paris and basically caused a riot. And uh, uh, the, Fr- the French are a little less tolerant of these sorts of things <laughs> than our police are. And they everybody beat the hell out of each other. But I mean, the thing is, is that there's no strategy other than to leave a visual impression on the news. Uh, that people are angry. Uh, that's not necessarily the best way to proceed. And the truckers are finding this out now, that they are, well, pro- they might be thinking, well, this is all part of the conspiracy against us uh, that we're being treated so badly. But they didn't get their message out very clearly. And and they may have to come to, hopefully, to a clearer way to get their message across and not rely on violence or, or blockades the way they did in the past.
0: Well, and we said that with the testimony from, uh, from Mr. Barber yesterday. Uh, you know, the, the, he was asked, you know, what about the manifestos that said they wanted to tear the government apart and, and you know, force the, uh, the prime minister out? And he said, well, that wasn't me. That was, well, but, but it was your group. I mean, you were part of that, and you didn't uh, disavow that at the time. So, you know, it's guilt by association, which and, I guess, you know, probably shocked him. But, you know, that, that's what we're looking for here is, is you know, who's speaking for whom here.
2: And and the threats of violence, and which we saw in with uh, Paul Pelosi in San Francisco, yeah. uh, there were a lot of threats of violence against uh, various members of the, of the, of the liberal government, uh, and the police were somehow didn't uh, re- respond to that in a in a timely manner, as they say. Um, so it just built on itself and became quite uh, quite powerful. And quite, and quite fearful, uh, made people very fearful. And so finally, when the government invoked the, uh, the Emergencies Act, um, it was clear that there was not, that they hadn't done enough previously and that the police forces, both the OPP, the RCMP and the, and the Ottawa police were paralyzed. And the question I would like answered is, what has been done inside those police forces to change that approach?
0: Exactly. Uh, well, we'll have to leave it there and see what's going to happen in the testimony uh, coming up in the next couple of days. Jeffrey, as always, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Jeffrey Devorkin, and senior fellow at Massey College.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot
0: of questions, a lot of uh, response emails and uh, text about uh, what's going on with uh, the notwithstanding clause and, uh, well, the back to work legislation that uh, the Ford government is trying to rush through at uh, Queen's Park these days. Uh, we're going to open the lines up in a couple of minutes, okay? And because uh, I'm going to get you your feedback on this, but I also want to give you a chance to to let off some steam about this, either yay or nay. Because uh, a mixed reaction that we're getting on this. Some people saying, "Look, come on, you know the kids uh, have to come first. You guys just have to suck it up." That's that's one line of thinking. Uh, the others is hey, it's about time that the government was fair with these people, and, uh, and and of course, there's the notwithstanding clause itself. Which, by the way, I want to talk about for a couple of minutes first, and then we'll open the lines up and get your thoughts on this. Uh, we do know, of course, that uh, the Ford government is uh, telling us that they want to uh, invoke the notwithstanding clause uh, to rush this back-to-work legislation through. And uh, there's some reaction even from other levels of government. Justice Minister David Lametti says the federal government is now considering intervening to stop the province from using the notwithstanding clause to prevent judicial scrutiny over controversial pieces of legislation. Uh, Lametti says that Ontario is eviscerating the role of the courts in Canada's democracy by invoking the clause at the same time as it pushes legislation to impose a contract on some education workers. Here's what the minister had to say.
3: The use of the notwithstanding clause is very serious. It de facto means that people's rights are being uh, infringed and it's being justified using the notwithstanding clause. And using it preemptively is exceedingly problematic. It cuts off both political debate and judicial scrutiny.
0: So uh, let's talk about that and, and the legality of it, uh, the, uh, the, the use of it, even in this particular situation. Uh, and to get some clarity on that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Alison Braley-Ratai, who is an Associate Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today.
3: My pleasure to be here. Thanks very much.
0: This is a, a big stick that the Ford government has tried to use or threatened to use in the past. Um, Justice Minister Lometti says that it's not the right time, not the right op- uh, usage of, of this class. What's your read on what you've heard so far?
3: Uh, well, I think fundamentally, uh, Mr. lemedi is correct about that. And I, I think that does seem to be uh, the majority opinion out there, certainly everything that I have read. And certainly it coincides with my own thoughts uh, that the use of the notwithstanding clause here is not only overkill, uh, but is also being uh, justified. in in a way that's fundamentally disingenuous. So for instance, uh, you know, the purpose of this bill is and has been rationalized as being uh, about avoiding disruption. And whatever one thinks about whether or not it's appropriate to use back to work legislation or perhaps we should call this stay at work legislation um, to avoid that disruption, that's sort of one thing. But Minister Lecce has said, you know, and it's necessary for us to invoke the notwithstanding clause, you know, in order to avoid that disruption. And that's fundamentally untrue. Um, What the notwithstanding clause does is it prevents the judicial scrutiny two, three, four years down the road with regard to this particular piece of legislation, which without the section 33 notwithstanding clause would almost assuredly be unconstitutional. And one of the reasons for that is because again, aside from just the, you know, you're gonna stay at work And we're going to avoid that disruption. It also does something even more egregious than, you know, just that. And some people think that part is egregious. Some people maybe do not. Uh, But it actually imposes a contract upon the very workers that it supposedly was negotiating with for all this time. So there are many pieces of this bill that are not necessary to the purported goal of simply avoiding the disruption.
0: And and maybe some history on on why the clause is even in existence right now. As We just uh, hinted at a couple of minutes ago. It goes back, I guess, to when the Constitution was repatriated, and there were some pretty heavy duty negotiations going on between the federal government and the provinces. And uh, this was supposed to be part of a compromise, wasn't it?
3: Well, indeed. In fact, it was, uh, you know, put in there as as a way of trying to convince some of the more reluctant provinces to sign on. I mean, I think we have to imagine, you know, you've got these legislatures and you've got these premiers who, you know, essentially... Uh, you know those legislatures are, are are supreme in their own jurisdiction, and then suddenly here's this thought: Hey, why don't we turn you know some of that supremacy over to the judiciary? And, and I think one can imagine why there would be some skepticism, some hesitance about doing that. But fundamentally, you know, the provinces did get on board, and one of the ways to get them on board was to say, you know, you know, there will be this. Escape clause, you know this 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 hatch at the back of the room. That if absolutely necessary, you know, if the judiciary is engaging in some kind of you know ridiculous overreach, uh, th- then you know you'll have this 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 escape hatch. And I think what's problematic about its use here, and and the fact that we are actually seeing it increasingly used predominantly by right-leaning governments. Um, but I think it's particularly you know, problematic in this instance because we're talking about 55,000 workers who are at the bottom of the rung in the educational sector, uh, an educational sector which you know, is part of the public sector really should only have decent jobs. Uh, they have lost ground over previous negotiations and are trying to make up ground. So they're, they're actually behind where they were 10 years ago. And then to say, okay, we're not going to fix that, you know, we're not going to let you strike, we're going to impose a contract term on you, which was basically what we wanted to give you all along, or very close to that. Uh, And then we're never going to let you actually, you know, deal with the ramifications of that, you know, two and three and four years down the road. I think, you know, in that scenario, it really seems problematic that, you know, dealing with this group of workers you know who are everyday average people who you know go to the you know, go to the supermarket and you know, take their kids to Little League and you know are law abiding. Uh, it's hard to see how this was what was envisioned when it was first uh, included in the charter.
0: And I know that uh, the the education minister, of course, has said, well, you know they they invoked the strike, which but everything they did was legal. Uh, um, you know they 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 had to give notice and they gave notice. Uh, But we've seen, you know, negotiations happen like this before, where they've given notice that they were going to strike, and they actually end up not striking uh, because some sort of a deal is is reached. But uh, the government just seemed to kind of pull the rug out from the whole process here.
3: Well, I mean, I think it's really important, and and you kind of hit the nail on the head. The fact is, when there is an an impasse and there's, like, tough negotiations happening, um, and there's not a lot of movement happening, the, the threat of the strike is, of course, what then, you know, focuses the parties in order to actually get a deal Uh, and if you're genuinely committed to that then you go through that process and you try to get a deal and if you're in the private sector well then you don't have the option of saying well you know we're just going to legislate it anyway so when you're dealing with the public sector and of course most unionized workers are in fact in the public sector you know the fact that 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 last ditch effort in these last few days was removed Uh, really, I think, is kind of telling uh, about what the government's intentions have been all along. And I think the fact that several weeks ago, they already started signaling that they were going to use back to work legislation, you know, when Ford said, you know, don't don't force my hand. And and Lecce said, you know, mark my words under no condition or students going to be out of class for a day. uh, Then you, you really got the sense that they already knew what was coming. And I think that's also part of the the genuine sense one can see about the kind of disrespect uh, this government has toward collective bargaining. It's one thing to have to go. Okay, we know we have parents, we know we have kids, we know disruption is bad. You know, maybe we have to make that decision. I mean, I think a lot of us could wrap our heads around that, whether we agreed, disagreed. We can get that. But it's all the rest of it that really seems to leave the impression that there was never any genuine desire to grapple with trying to you know eke out a, a, a you know a contract that both sides could fundamentally live with.
0: the fact that they've used this to do evoke it, I mean because we have to kind of separate the legislation from the the threat to use the notwithstanding clause, but the fact that they had to invoke the clause, uh, does that indicate that they know that if this Uh, law that they're passing, and they will pass it, they have a majority in the legislature, of course, would not withstand a, a charter challenge.
3: I think there's no doubt that that's true. Um, we saw Bill 115, which the uh, previous Liberal government had passed back in 2012, um, and it had some of these same hallmarks, including uh, imposing a contract. And when that was challenged, of course, several years down the road, um, it was deemed unconstitutional and, you know, the government had to pay, you know, remedy for that, right? They had to pay mm-hmm. pay some money for the violation of the constitutional right. Um, you know, the government has constitutional lawyers advising them, uh, and I think, I think there is really no doubt that this particular example of back-to-work legislation, not that all examples of back-to-work legislation are necessarily unconstitutional, but this one I think assuredly would have been. I think there's very little doubt that they were told that, and I think that this is absolutely a good inference to draw, that they not only thought it might, but actually were probably quite convinced that it would, and therefore are invoking Section 33.
0: So if they do go through with this and, and invoke the, the notwithstanding clause, uh, it basically makes this legislation untouchable then.
3: Well, you know, there has been some chatter about whether or not there are any, uh, you know, legal avenues to to challenge it. Um, I think that there may be, and if you could see my face, it'd be like, yeah, maybe <laughs> some avenues. Uh, and I myself am, you know, thinking, well, what, what could be done here? Uh, but I do think it's, number one, highly speculative at this point. And frankly, I think, you know, kind of something of a Hail Mary.
0: Well, and we, just uh, before you join us, of course, we played the clip from uh, Justice Minister Lamedi, uh where he says the government is considering intervening to stop the province from uh, invoking the clause. What tools do they have to do that?
3: Well, you know, I, I, I'm I a little uh, uncertain. I know we're, de- get,
0: we're getting really deep into the weeds here, the legal weeds, but, you know, <laughs> uh, they... I, I, I'll, I'll justify it this way, Professor. That we didn't. We, we didn't go in here on our own. They let us into it. So now we're stuck with it.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I- indeed. Uh, I I wouldn't want to speculate too much. I mean, that got my brain thinking too. I, mm, what what, are just, <laughs> yeah. what are thinking here? So, I mean, I, I I wouldn't want to speculate. Although there did seem to be more of a certainty in kind of the way it was expressed than certainly I would have expressed it. So, I don't know if there's a trick up their sleeve that that I'm just not seeing. I, I guess the uh, the wait and see approach is is uh, what we're going to have to take at this point. Otherwise, it's it really is just in the, in the land of speculation and, and and might not be advisable right now
0: uh enforceable i guess is uh, the other element of this too i mean the, if they pass this legislation uh, it goes into law uh mm-hmm. they've suggested uh that uh, and it's actually included in this legislation uh that mm-hmm. if they do go off the job on friday or you can call it wherever you want a protest to strike whatever that uh, they could be fined up to four thousand dollars per would, would the government in, uh, just speculating here but would the government go to that extent just to make their point
3: well, you know, I mean, they've put it in the legislation for a reason. Uh, I mean, I think clearly it's meant to have a deterrent effect. Um, I, I suspect that uh, you know, QP knows that they, they they would be on the hook for that, and uh, I, I think I think there is some intention on the part of the union to, to pay for that uh, among the, the individuals, but I, I don't know that for sure. I, I you know, I don't have any sort of special insight of that they haven't been talking to me. You know, whether or not the government at the end of the day would sort of let them have their one Friday. Uh, you know, maybe. I mean, maybe there's been enough kind of, you know, you know, public sentiment that maybe this has been a little overkill. So, you know, maybe they've given them a break on the one day. I mean, it is like, as you say, pure speculation. Uh, but if it were to continue, I mean, if QP was actually to sort of defy it, uh, you know, forget Friday, we all know Friday, okay, uh, then I, I don't see a lot of reason for this government to back down. It doesn't seem like the backing down kind of government with dealing with this particular group of people, with other groups, I, I think yes. I don't think with this particular group.
0: What, what do you feel is just from your your observations of the last couple of days? The public sentiment on a situation like this uh, is is the public sympathetic to the collective bargaining agreement? Do they think consider it to be sacrosanct, or does it depend on who it is that's doing the bargaining?
3: My, my my sense of it is that it really does depend on who it is that's doing the bargaining. So I I think there's kind of a, a general sense that well you know yeah it, it's 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 good for you know workers to have kind of some say o, o, over things. Um, whether or not people are deeply sympathetic to unions in this present day, I think, is a bit of a uh, you know a come see come saw question. Uh, I do think that they tend to be much more sympathetic when they believe that the specific issue is something they can get behind. So not necessarily about collective bargaining uh, in the abstract or constitutional rights in the abstract, uh, although I think those are also actually quite important because they lead to other things that then have very concrete, uh, uh, you know, representations. Uh, But I do think in this case and and in cases about unionized workers uh, for probably most average people it really does come down to uh, whether or not they can get behind Um, the particular demands uh, of the particular workers. In this case, I do think that these people are sort of are objectively uh, fairly sympathetic uh, because, uh, you know, because they are at the bottom uh, of the rung, uh, because they have lost ground, um, and because they actually do really important work uh, you know in particular I think parents would appreciate the, the work that you know some of the resource teachers do and helping special needs students stay in the classroom for instance I mean these are the you know these are the people who you know do some of the ECE stuff these are the people who you know help the the students who are on the spectrum get through their days uh, I mean some of them do pretty extraordinary work and, and I think a lot of parents do actually know that
0: uh parents do but i'm just wondering if the general public if you don't have uh, kids in school or grandkids i guess in school depending on your situation if you're even paying attention to it but we're going to find that out in just a couple of minutes uh very helpful to get your insights into this professor thank you so much for the time today
3: oh thank you very much for having me
0: take care we'll uh, see how things develop in the next couple of days uh professor allison uh, braley from uh, brock university who majors, of course, and teaches about labor studies. And, uh, well, contracts, I guess, are going to be part of that, too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900
1: CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.